Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12:2. This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, or perhaps in his own time. Thomas Carlyle was widely acknowledged, along with William Cobbett, John Ruskin, and William Morris, as one of the great Jeremiahs of the Victorian age. Like them, he railed against the bold materialism, the bare rationalism, and the brazen skepticism of his time with an untempered fervor rivaling the seers of yore, and consequently he was less than esteemed by his peers, but he has proved to be more relevant than almost all of them to our time and to all time. Chided as a contentious crank, pilloried as a bombastic buffoon, reproached as a jingoistic jester, and dismissed as a domineering dolt, Carlyle nevertheless set the standard for philosophical commentary and almost single-handedly changed the shape of historical research for several generations to come. By turns scholarly and theatrical, sober and whimsical, furtive and satirical, he challenged the staid notions of the dispassionate academic literary establishment and championed the popularization of revisionist and partisan chronicling. He was born on December the 4th, 1795 in the small market town of Ecclefechan in the Scottish county of Dumfrieshire, not far from the north shore of the Solway Firth, the eldest of nine children. The roots of his family in that Annandale soil were deep and tenacious. His father was a stonemason and a farmer, who raised his progeny in the proud but stern providence of the Burger Secession Church, one of the numerous splinter groups that had rebelled against the laxity of the established national church. Though young Carlyle fled to the intellectual environs of literary London at the earliest opportunity, he was never able to escape the tug of those strong childhood influences. He was a resolute Scot. He was a hard-working commoner, and he was a convinced Calvinist. Furious episodes of rebellion from these standards would punctuate his life and career, but he always returned, thus demonstrating his contention that What a man is ultimately determines what he does, not the other way around. Carlyle abandoned his first ambition to be a clergyman for a career as an economist and mathematician, but before long his wide-ranging intellect felt too constrained even by that. 
He read voraciously and omnivorously in the medieval classics and the Chanson de Chivalry, realizing before long that his emerging worldview, rooted in that profound heritage of near-forgotten Christendom, was utterly at odds with the prevailing Enlightenment view of his time. So he began to write, or rather to prophesy. He made his reputation as an enthusiastic translator and an iconoclastic reviewer, specializing in the prolific new explosion of German Romanticism. But in 1832, on a visit to the sprawling modern metropolis of London, he began writing his brilliant commentary, Sartre Restartus. It was his reaction to the compelling attractions and grotesque contradictions of the city. At the time, London was in the process of becoming the first truly great industrial center in the world. The venerable old city of Shakespeare and Milton and Pope and Dryden and Johnson and Wren was rapidly disappearing. In its place was an emerging and remarkable innovation of modern machinery and the urban center, the inhuman humanism of commercial progress. Carlyle was attracted and repulsed simultaneously, and his writing ably demonstrated that wrenching paradox as did the similarly conflicted novels of his friend, Charles Dickens. Part novel, part autobiography, part history, and part social commentary, Sartre Restartus is one of the most original works of prose ever written in the English language. The conservative publishers along Charing Cross Road and Paternoster Row in London were frightened away at first by its ostentatiously fantastic vision, and so it was serialized in the newly established Fraser's magazine. Only later, because of intense public demand, was it published independently for the trade. At first sight, the book appeared to be the bizarre account, recorded by an admiring but dubious editor, of a work by an outlandish German philosopher named Diogenes, literally the devil's dung. He was a professor of things in general at the University of Weizenwachtu, literally don't know where on the philosophy of clothes, or more specifically, on the philosophy of hidden and revealed covenants. The whole story turns out to be an ingenious and amusing metaphor comparing and contrasting Lutheran pietism with Calvinistic covenantalism. The eccentricity of Diogenes is somehow symbolic of God's providential working in the lives of the mundane and ordinary men uh, to accomplish marvelous and extraordinary deeds while his strange fixation on clothes is symbolic of this poor fallen world which at once disguises and conceals but also reveals and expresses uh, the gracious workings of the Spirit of God behind the spirit of men. 
Most students of the work of Carlyle contend that his thought did not reach full maturity until the appearance of his great historical and biographical works, the French Revolution in 1837, Heroes and Hero Worship in 1841, The Life and Letters of Cromwell in 1845, uh, The Life of Sterling in 1851, The Multi-Volume History of Frederick the Great from 1858 to 1865, and The Portraits of John Knox in 1875. But the fact is, The philosophical grid for all of those later works was first established and best delineated in Sartre Restartus. It was in the novel that he argues that history is itself a kind of dim gospel, the veiled revelation of a just providence working in the affairs of men. It was not a gospel that could be read simplistically, of course. Rather, it was one that bids us all to pause over the mysterious vestiges of him whose path is in the great deep of time, whose history indeed reveals, but only in all of history and in eternity, not merely in swatches, will he clearly be revealed. It was in the novel that he best enunciated his belief that we can see the ultimate reality of God's glory in the brute obscurity of recorded events, knowing that man's history is a perpetual evangel, an inarticulate Bible, a loud roaring loom of time with all its French revolutions and Jewish revelations weaving the vesture thou seest him by. Thus, in the novel, he provided his readers with the best and arguably the most entertaining introduction to his groundbreaking thought. While reading his works of history, especially of the Revolution and of Frederick, is essential Reading his creatively playful philosophy of history is more essential still. And it is essential, if only to enable us to wrestle as he did with the incongruities of life in the throes of urban and industrial modernity, a critical discipline for both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information, including resources and a brand new comprehensive app, go to georgegrant.net.